my grandmother in Greece never learned to read, never learned to write, let her son come to the United States alone to work as a farm worker. And in one generation, her granddaughter was sent back to Europe by the president of the United States. Welcome to Vital Interest. My name is Karen Greenberg, and I am the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. Our podcast is designed to help you understand security in its many dimensions. Each week, we will bring you thoughtful voices from the worlds of policy, government, law, journalism, and advocacy. We will look at the challenges that confront us today and tomorrow, from pandemic to climate change, from terrorism to population migration, from war to peace, all with an eye towards the rule of law, the protection of human rights, and the respect for civil liberties. Vital Interest Podcast is committed to making the world we live in more comprehensible, the part we play in it more engaged, and our futures more secure. It is our way here at CNS of connecting with our times and with one another. Welcome, everyone. It's June 24th, 2020, and with me today is California's Lieutenant Governor, Eleni Kunalakis. Elected in 2018, she assumed office in January 2019, the first woman to hold the position. Eleni Kunalakis is the head of California Governor Gavin Newsom's International Affairs and Trade Development Committee. Before that, she chaired Governor Jerry Brown's Advisory Council for International Trade and Investment. And before that, she was U.S. Ambassador, serving as President Obama's Ambassador to Hungary. In her earlier career, she focused on using her business skills to plan communities with quality housing for working families in Sacramento. And in addition to all of this, she has written a book, Madam Ambassador, Three Years of Diplomacy, Dinner Parties, and Democracy in Budapest. Welcome, Lieutenant Governor. Well, Karen, thank you so much. It's wonderful to be with you. Thank you for having me and for all of the great work that you do at the Center for National Security at Fordham Law. Thank you for saying that. So you are the 50th Lieutenant Governor of California and the first woman, as I said, to hold the position. And I wanted to start by asking you, Lieutenant Governor positions seem to vary from state to state. What does the Lieutenant Governor of California do? Well, that's exactly right. Every state has a very different approach. Most states have one, but there are a few who don't. Um, But essentially, the idea is that Uh, you have a backup plan so that if the governor for any reason is either out of state or unable to fulfill his or her duties, you have someone who can step in. But over the years, the role of lieutenant governor has changed in California, and it's really been shaped largely by the dynamics between the LG and the governor, uh, and then also just the interests and expertise of the person holding the position. So I should probably start by saying is that I was elected separately from the governor. And we are an incredibly large and diverse state. I campaigned in all 58 counties. I'd never run for public office before, though I'd served in government office as an ambassador. And it was this extraordinary election of 2016 when women emboldened by the loss, I think it's fair to say, of Hillary Clinton, and who heard her call that women should stand up and run for office. I heard that call. And before I knew it, I was running, built a a coalition, and now have been in office for about a year and a half, bringing with me the priorities of the people who I represent, and so many of whom I had a chance to meet out on the campaign trail. 
It's really interesting. You bring together both international issues of a wide spectrum, which we're going to talk about, but also very local issues. It's kind of wonderful to see both an attention to the women, education, community issues, and this larger issue of trade, which I'd like to turn to uh, now, if you don't mind. You've identified the major issues that concern you as, among others, trade, climate change, and immigration issues, sort of what you see as the three pillars of California's international relations. So I guess that a lot of listeners would say, wait, isn't California a state? What are California's international relations? And then I've noticed that you've done a lot of traveling as part of your portfolio as lieutenant governor. And so the question is, how do you see the role of trade? Why is it so important to California, which if I, I, I last checked, and I don't know if this is still true, had the fifth largest economy in the world. And how does this all play out in terms of its importance? Can you talk a little bit about that? Okay, well, there's a, a fair amount to respond to. Let me start with just your first question. And, you know, because I'm a former United States ambassador and I've had all of this experience in trade, that is the main reason why the office of the lieutenant governor is at this moment very engaged. And I have a terrific working relationship and friendship with the governor that goes back many, many years. And he asked me right after I was elected if I would work with him and represent him as his representative on international affairs and trade, which of course I'm delighted to do. So it is an unusual thing that I would be engaged at this level. And it has to do with those things I just said. So it also has to do with the fact that California is a nation state. In most states, you wouldn't really have the level of international engagement that we do in California. And it's really more important than ever because so many of our values in those areas you described on trade, on immigration, on climate, we have a very different view on these things than the current administration in Washington. So that has given us the opportunity. We already had the platform, but we're also very driven because we take these issues very seriously. The work that we do on climate change is very important. I'm happy to go into that. The importance to our economy of international trade is enormous. We are without question impacted disproportionately to the rest of the country when it comes to the tariffs disputes or USMCA. And then uh, in the area of immigration, again, like the other two, we don't have sovereign authority here, but we are 27% foreign born in California. And it is estimated that eight to 10% of our workforce is undocumented. So these policies are critical for us. And we would argue that they are critical for the whole country because the contribution to the US economy of California is so enormous. So that's really what gives us the platform. You asked about foreign travel just really quickly. I, I will say this because it is important. I have led trade delegations and delegations that have dealt not just with trade, but climate and our other priorities to Mexico, to India. Uh, I went to the Belt and Road Initiative in China, mostly to talk about climate. I think you were the only U.S. representative there. Is that correct? I was, and that is a whole other story. But, but I just want to say this. <laughs> I do need to stay in California most of the time 
So while I'm willing to do these trips, most of our attention is in rolling out the red carpet to bring people here, to let countries interested in participating in that under two coalition, for instance, come here and learn how California does things. And of course, to attract foreign direct investment, which creates jobs and strengthens our economy here at home. So yeah, it is a very big can of worms that I've opened up there, and maybe we could talk about them individually. But you brought up the under two MOUs, and I think people would be really interested in hearing more about that, and I wondered if you could fill us in. And just to put this in perspective a little bit, to talk about the way in which you see the relationship between what you hope to do in terms of trade relations and issues related to climate change. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, Karen, I think the Under Two Coalition is really one of the best examples we have of subnational diplomacy at work and California's leadership in that space. So several years ago, the state of Baden-Württemberg from Germany came to California. There was a conference on climate and together we founded the Under Two Coalition. And this is an agreement among jurisdictions that now represents 1.3 billion people and 43% of the global economy to keep global warming under two degrees Celsius. Subnational governments coming together now representing 43% of the global economy. So it's a really big deal. And it's especially important because in cases like California versus the United States, we're very much in the Paris Climate Accord. We're very much committed to these things even though at the national level, they're going the other direction. It's really one of the best examples we have, but of course there are many others. Two interesting things that really stand out to me. One is this notion of subnational relations and subnational diplomacy. And I just wonder if there's a sense that this is something that the public is really not aware of. You referred to California as a nation state, very much for its survival, economic and otherwise, dependent on relations with foreign governments and with a global conversation. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about subnational diplomacy and its viability? And perhaps also just talk about would it be correct to say that subnational diplomacy is a way in which we can have stability in the world despite regime change, despite? nation-state conflicts or not? Well, I come out of an extraordinary experience and really the honor of my life serving as a United States ambassador. So I very much believe in sovereign nations and the leadership and authority and responsibility that goes along with sovereign leadership. And I'm a patriot. I believe in the United States. I believe in our country. And I'm very hopeful that world leadership by the United States will be restored um, after a time right now where our alliances are under threat and so many of the values that the United States is really defined by are in retreat. So it's a balance. And I think that's important. And your listeners certainly know the difference between sovereign governments and the authority that goes along with that versus subnational. So I don't want to suggest that there isn't a difference. There certainly is. But what we find with a state like California, which has a population larger than Canada and an economy larger than India, 
and a brand in the world that stands for liberal democracy, that stands for nation of immigrants, certainly state of immigrants, we're 27% foreign born, the national average is 14, that stands for individual leadership and, and the ability to be who you wanna be, innovation and Silicon Valley and everything that's come along with that. We know we have a platform. And so the degree to which we can influence world events when it comes to immigration, climate change, and trade, we will assume that role and elevate our voice. That is not an effort to be subversive, uh, certainly not by me. We're very careful in this space. At the same time, when you're talking about global warming and when you're talking about national security and global security, anyone who feels that they have the ability to contribute to a more peaceful, more just, more safe world, I think has an obligation to stand up and speak out. That's certainly how we think here at the center. That's what we're always looking for. I want to turn to the immigration issue a little bit. I think you're the daughter of an immigrant. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. My father was an immigrant and he started out in California as a farm worker when he was a teenager. Two days ago, the president suspended new work visas and barred hundreds of thousands of foreigners from seeking employment in the United States. And one of the biggest sectors of the economy to respond to that negatively was the tech sector, which basically said, you know, we rely on these visas for a lot of our talent. Do you think that this is really going to uh, impair U.S. industry, or do you think that there'll be a way to get around the limitations it's imposing? So I'm very concerned about this. You know, Karen, I think that with a lot of the actions that are coming out of the federal government, in some ways people are sort of holding their breath to see what happens in November. There is such an established culture around immigration to California, and in particular, the H-1B visa program. California is the largest destination for people on H-1B visas, nearly 180,000 uh, of that type of visa holder is here in California. You know, when I was in Hungary, there were young people working in technology. They knew that if they developed a product and it was good enough and they could get to California and have access to venture capital money and they could be in the center of innovation, establish a company here and grow it, that's the California dream for so many of these brilliant minds around the world. And by the way, know that when they get here, they'll be embraced, even though they have accents, even though they come from places that some people may never even have heard of. It is so important to our economy. If you look at the CEOs, C-suite, innovators in California, you see a very large percentage of people who came here on this visa program. So. Again, there's a lot at stake in November, and this is a program that has been critical for us in California, and again, developing a part of our economy that has been critical for the economy of the country as a whole. So 
as worrisome and distressing as it is to me, it's a matter of keeping calm and hoping that we will have decision makers in Washington that will reverse this decision and renew the program and unfreeze the program. And again, I think that it's just so fundamentally important to us, yet no one is surprised because there's no rational reason to do this. It is not about our security. It is not about our economy. It is not about the spread of COVID. It is simply another one of these messages that Donald Trump is sending saying, America doesn't want you. Well, California wants you. And so we're very hopeful that we'll have new leadership at the top and that this and so many other programs will be reversed. Speaking about keeping calm and about the era of COVID that we now find ourselves in, there's been so much talk lately in the press, almost a hysteria about the disruption of supply chains and how that's going to impact the economy nationwide and also globally and how things are going to get reoriented in terms of China as such an important player in the supply chain. How do you see this playing out? Do you think that the crisis is as intense as some of the experts are saying? Do you think that it's time for a change in policy anyway, even without COVID and COVID heightened uh, the need to pay attention to the vulnerabilities in supply chains? How do you see this? Well, I think you laid it out pretty clearly. I I think that we are very aware that we are entering into a period of economic change, accelerated, as you noted, not created by COVID, but accelerated by COVID. And one of the things that we are working to prepare for this is to work with companies to see if there are elements of their supply chains that they recognized were more at risk than they thought before COVID and see if we can't get them to bring more of that manufacturing back into California. And that isn't just trade with Asia, it's also frankly with Mexico, because there were, you know, there are these maquilladoras on the other side of the California-Mexico border. And for a variety of reasons, there has been disruption of supply chains there that has made companies, whether it's in healthcare or in aerospace or other of the manufacturing that goes on down in the San Diego area, in particular in Los Angeles, has made them rethink whether or not it is worth the risk and having the kind of predictability that comes with having more of their operations here in the US. So we're exploring that, but overall, are we looking at a serious disruption in global trade? Yes, part of it is COVID, part of it was brought on frankly, by the tariffs dispute that's kind of gotten swallowed up in all of this. But already our ports were being significantly impacted and our industries far and wide have been impacted by the tariffs dispute. So there's going to be some significant challenges ahead of us. And is your sense that with a new administration, some of this could be rolled back and restored in terms of free trade pretty quickly? Or are we looking at a a longer period of time it would take 
The advisors to the vice president, many of which I've had an opportunity to get to know and to work with, I don't think rolling back, restoring, you know, all of that is going backward. And I think that most of Joe Biden's advisors are really about looking forward and recognizing that the level of disruption from one administration to the next, from the Obama administration to the Trump administration is so significant, again, complicated by COVID, that we can't look at restoration. We have to look at rebuilding with an eye on the massive changes, again, brought about by all of these, as well as the digital revolution. But I will say this, and it's a point that I don't think is recognized often enough. When most companies look at um, their decisions of where they're going to locate and invest, there, there are certainly things like taxation that come into play. But one of the most, if not the most important thing that they look at is stability. And the United States still offers in so many ways the greatest amount of stability, the greatest amount of transparency, and the greatest amount of predictability in terms of where you can operate than, than almost anywhere. Our courts have been uh, maligned and attacked in the last three years, but they still operate to ensure that contracts are enforced and that intellectual property is protected. So I believe very strongly that everything that has made the United States the largest economy in the world still exists largely around stability, predictability, transparency, and our legal system. But there is a lot at stake. And, and on that point, the other thing that we continue to have here that is so different uh, than most of the world is our system of education. In California alone, we have 3 million students currently enrolled in public higher education. About 2.1 million of those students are in our community college system, the first two years of which are free. So one of the things we've been looking at is our workforce and workforce development, reskilling, and how we build on this already extraordinary and robust system, system of public higher, higher education that has created this trained workforce and get our people ready. And again, one of the things that goes along with that is that young people in particular are not waiting around to be told what they should study in order to get a job. They know, they're smart, they're savvy. They talk to people and they talk to family members and friends to have a sense of where the jobs might be. So that kind of can-do attitude that's alive and well in California met with the infrastructure that we have here around education, met with the opportunities that those students meet upon getting their training with the companies that are here to hire them. All of that bodes well for our state and I think for the country as a whole. You've made me, I'm ready. I'm ready to move. <laughs> it's, but it does sound like California could be a model for a lot of the things that, that there's a controversy about right now, in particular, education 
and public education. So, so that's actually fascinating. It's also interesting to hear about the courts because the courts are so struggling right now outside of the business sphere in terms of dealing with national security questions, as we've seen in the course of a number of decisions in the past couple of weeks. So it's interesting to hear it from the point of view of contracts and intellectual property as opposed to these national security issues. I wanted to turn to women because you mentioned at the beginning that the 2016 election sort of sets a signal to women. You know, it's time to run for office. It's time to get out there. It's time to help the country. And I just wondered if you're feeling the camaraderie. There's so many vibrant women politicians and have been in California, but also nationwide. There's just a surge of women at all levels of government. And I just wondered if there's a sense that there's a real sense of solidarity among women who are new to the scene and old to the scene or not. So I feel it, Karen, and I'll tell you, I think that one of the things that is fortunately being talked about more is the influence of women of color on our political system. They're breaking old, not just stereotypes, but I think old ways of doing things, you know, from maybe a generation just above me, I'm 54, that generation you didn't see a lot of women helping women or, or you heard a lot of anecdotes about, well, there's only going to be one seat at the table for a woman. So the women might compete against one another. Women of color have a quite different orientation. I have seen, number one, that they are very aware of the importance of the political system on them and their families. I'm involved with an organization called Moms Rising. It's a national organization, largely women of color, working women who submit testimony and sign petitions online, even if they're working two, three jobs to be able to make sure that their voice is heard in the voting booth. We know that Joe Biden, as a nominee, really happened because of African-American women who were stalwart in their support for him. And as I traveled the state of California, what I found as the daughter of an immigrant who started out as a farm worker, I'm Greek, uh, you know, I'm five foot two and I don't necessarily, and what I found was this unbelievable embrace and warmth of women of color to the point that, and it wasn't just the women who I met, it was what was showing up in our polls. So my pollster was looking statewide at our numbers as we were getting closer within weeks and days of election day. And they would break it down. And one of the categories was Latina women. And the support I had among Latina women was something like 80%. And I was running against another Democrat, a Latino man, And the pollster was confused. And he says, well, I wonder if they think you're a Latina. (laughs) And there's no way, you know, that's not. But clearly what was going on, coupled with the anecdotal part of this talking to them, is that a woman with a funny name must know what's going on in their experience. And they believe that in promoting someone like them, it will be good for them. And there are policies that will help them and their families. So I think that's huge. And I think that it's important to pay attention to this group. I think they're very powerful. I think they operate from a place of 
need in, in many places. You're talking about single moms, working moms, but you're also talking about people who are quite optimistic. They're working for the future of themselves and for their children. So that's been really a bright spot in, in my experience. I noticed that in one of your campaign ads, you have people trying to pronounce your name. <laughs> and I so so now I understand sort of and, and you know everybody's stumbling over it and it's just a, a very uh, charming endearing ad and I, I guess that fits into what your pollster was talking about that's interesting I wanted to turn uh, to Hungary and your time in Hungary just as a prelude to that I worked in Hungary in the 90s worked on a number of civil society initiatives and so you were there at, at kind of a very critical time for people who follow the Hungarian trend towards democracy and then away from democracy. And I just wanted if you wanted to talk a little bit about your time there and um, maybe a little bit about Viktor Orban and his direction towards autocracy. And just, I'm curious about your thoughts. Was there a moment of hope during your tenure there? You know, I wrote my book right after I got back in 2013. And at the time, as I was trying to, you know, find a publisher for it, uh, there was this, well, who really cares about Hungary? Who knows where it is? Um, you know, so, so the book talks a lot about what embassies do, what ambassadors do, uh, a little bit about my own story. You know, my grandmother in Greece never learned to read, never learned to write, let her son come to the United States alone to work as a farm worker. And in one generation, her granddaughter was sent back to Europe by the president of the United States. So I wanted to tell that. Story. Amazing. It's an amazing story. But I also wanted to tell the story of what happened when I was there with Victor Orban. I spent a lot of time with him and with his key advisors. And of course, the United States really tried. Uh, we had a, a pretty significant push to try to keep Hungary from going too far into the degradation of their democratic institutions and, and independent institutions of democracy with some success, with some success. But after the United States elected Donald Trump, I mean, I, I think that was the end of our argument. How do we make an argument that Viktor Orban policies are wrong for Hungary and wrong for the Hungarian people if the United States elects someone who looks at Viktor Orban and thinks, this guy is great. He's figured out how to consolidate all the power, to be able to get rid of those pesky fake newsers, uh, how, you know, journalists, how to lock everything up so that nobody dare dissent. So here we are. And it's sad and it's, it's difficult. And Freedom House, in fact, just declared or categorized Hungary as only partly free. Uh, it is the only country within the European Union who has that designation and that it is no longer a democracy. So it's very sad. I, I will say this. I spent three and a half years living there. I had little kids and they were in a weekend program. So we really didn't leave. I was there with my family for three and a half years, constantly. In Budapest, right? In Budapest. In Budapest, yeah. It is an extraordinary 
extraordinary place. It's incredibly beautiful, wonderful place to live for three and a half years. The people are incredibly cultured and they know their history and they're intellectual, they're scientists, they're uh, musicians. The countryside is full of fabulous treasures going back a thousand years. Uh, It was just a remarkable, wonderful place to live. And I am very hopeful that the people of Hungary still possess within their hands the ability to guide their country on some level so that if Orban or if the people around him go to a place that is too far in compromising their freedoms, that they will have the ability to stand up to it. But it's difficult and it is sad. And I think ultimately what the Hungary example shows, and and remember it is a country of fewer than 10 million people. We have more people living in Los Angeles County than live in Hungary. Uh, And so that perspective is helpful. But for me, reminds me of what Hillary Clinton would always say, say to me, say to people who we brought to meet with her, uh, democracy is always a work in progress and democracy needs to deliver for people. And people need to believe that democracy is delivering for them. That is our challenge for those of us who do believe in democracy, to show that it can deliver. And I think more than anything in my position as diplomat turned lieutenant governor, that I have an opportunity to prove that democracy delivers in my position in California. And that is my guiding principle and what I work toward. It's a long game at this point, but every single day provides an opportunity to be able to make that case. Well, you, you sort of answered what's always my last question, which is what is there that we can have some hope for and some optimism about? So I think you sort of answered it unless you want to add anything to what you just said. Yeah, I love that Nike ad, there is no finish line. I think <laughs> that's really the root of optimism. And we have that, not just in California, we have that in the United States. We just keep going. We just keep going. And I think it was Winston Churchill who said, when you're going through hell, keep going, (laughs) right? So we're in very difficult times. There's no question about it. This global pandemic is deadly and and we've lost so many people globally, uh, including here in California. We have an economic crisis on the heels of it that's going to be very painful and difficult. We have democracies under attack and in retreat around the world. We know this. We know this. But somebody has got to do something about it. And so for anyone out there listening who feels a drive, the call to action to stand up and get engaged and get involved, ultimately, Karen, that is what democracy is all about. And this is the moment. And I think sort of underlying everything you've said is There's been so much rhetoric lately, contrary to what you've said about how the United States has lost its position in the world, we're pulling back from the world. You know, there's a sense of we've lost our leadership in the world, that issues of human rights and civil liberties and so much that the rest of the world look to us to, including stability, economic and otherwise, that it's disappearing. And when I hear you talk, there's a sense that, no, 
we're just finding our moment, finding our legs in this new era that's, you know, particularly challenged by COVID and um, by the policies of the person who's in the White House now. So uh, I thank you for that, for reminding us that that leadership role, we can help ourselves, but we can also help inspire perhaps the world at uh, the same time. Well, from subnational diplomacy to COVID to women in politics, the one theme underlying everything you've said today is the importance of leadership at the individual level, at the state level, at the national level, and at the global level. And so I thank you. This has been a very uh, inspiring and informative conversation. Thank you so much, Lieutenant Governor Kunalakis, for joining me. Thank you, Karen. It's been wonderful to be with you. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. We hope it made your day a little brighter, a little clearer, and a little more informed. Join us next time for the newest installment of Vital Interest Podcast. In the meantime, feel free to send us your questions at vitalinterestpodcast.org and to follow us on Twitter at VI underscore podcast CNS. And make sure to check out our daily morning brief, our weekly cyber brief, and our Vital Interest online forum at Center on National Security. Have a wonderful week and please stay safe.